from Trimble Construction, you're listening to The Connected Construction Show, where we connect you to the contractors, owners, designers, engineers, and construction professionals who are finding better ways to work. And now, here's your host, Matt Sprague. All right, so we are back. Uh, One more of the three-part series around data availability what that means from the perspective of the three phases of an asset life cycle. We started off in week one talking about operations and maintenance. Uh, we moved into our planning and design, and now we're moving into construction. Um, and, and, and it does make sense. One kind of feeds onto the other, and in reality, it's a cyclical nature to it all uh, in terms of data and availability helping the next. So um, the, the historical data available uh, throughout operations and maintenance makes planning and design a heck of a lot better. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the quality uh, information and data availability throughout the de- de- uh, planning and design process, um, I'm making the assumption now, makes construction uh, a heck of a lot easier. So um, we're going to jump right back into, into this. So uh, I'll open this question up to, to everybody. So um, as-built documentation is a snapshot uh, from a a point in time. So what practices can be used to make sure that the as-built condition stays up to date uh, with that reliable data? Uh, And, you know, so we want this reliable data at the end of construction, as I mentioned, cyclical, so that we can have better operations and maintenance. So how do we get there throughout this process? That's a, I mean, it's a good question, and it's an interesting one, and I think technology has certainly helped us in that regard, right? Um, you know, years ago, it, it was literally the the red line markup uh, as-built drawing from the folks in construction, and, and maybe that got updated in CAD, and, and that got tossed into uh, some records management system so somebody could look it up in the future, uh, which is still useful and still beneficial, um, you know, but as as construction is completed and, and a, a particular asset system is commissioned, um, <clears throat> you know, there, there may be some changes. So, you know, LIDAR scanning and, and making things into a model, an informed model, you know, <clears throat> that you can find information about um, is hugely beneficial. And, and I think, um, again, you, you mentioned it in your question, Matt, it, it, it is a LIDAR too, is, is a, a scan is a snapshot in time. Right. And we have to make sure that as things change after construction, whether that be six months or or six years, that we make sure that we're maintaining our models and our scans such that when we are, again, informing operations and maintenance from construction and then on again to planning and design that we're presenting them accurate information, right? Because I think the the biggest pitfall here is that, yes, we have technology that we can get all this great stuff and make it available, but we have to make sure that it's accurate and that it's maintained. Um, You know, so I think uh, technology in that regard, LIDAR scanning is a a huge benefit, uh, certainly applicable to many projects, but not all. Um, You know, there's lots of tools out there, but at the end of the day, it's making sure that we are preserving and maintaining accurate as built information for when construction was completed and or for whenever any of those little you know modifications are made after the fact uh, because that's critically important too 
Yeah, this question really speaks to that that important transition from construction commission into operations and maintenance, where right the the assets are literally handed over from a contractor back to the owner, and that transition is traditionally very difficult. Um, so, getting high quality as built or reality capture data like lidar scans is critical. And in addition to that. You know, we need to know all of the right information that helps us ingest that data into our long-term record-keeping systems, right? So geospatially, we're typically talking about a GIS system, um, but we also have to consider our CMMS or EAM systems, right? These are the systems that the owners, the operators, and the facilities folks will be using to capture those assets as they live on for years and likely decades. Um, so the proper data and information needs to sort of be planned out throughout that, in my opinion, through the planning and design stage, we can start building in the right data, um, the data properties and attributes that need to be collected, um, sort of build the, the places for that data to be captured in the construction phase and ensure through, you know, QAQC that the construction folks are actually capturing the data that was requested so that it can then be transitioned over as, as easily or as efficiently as possible into other um, owner-maintained systems like GIS or an EAM. And, you know, once that happens, that really, you know, we need to, to understand, you know, uh, manufacturing specs, uh, manuals, operations manuals, anything that's really going to inform the operations and maintenance of those particular assets or facilities once they're handed over. All of that is sort of like this. It starts at the planning and design phase and just cascades down to the end of construction. And it cannot be overlooked. That final, you know, final contract deliverables out of any project is really critical to us, you know, getting the most out of the assets and facilities that are being handed over to us so we can actually run them efficiently and um yeah hopefully get the best out of them i think one thing i'd like to see in the industry it's interesting in the construction phase um and this is just a it's just a statement of fact where the industry is is we do have all this great technology and, and things and strides that have been made but when you look at um i'll say 99.9 percent .9 of the contracts construction contracts that are issued um you know asset management is evolving planning design is evolving building models are being generated a lot of wealth of information um and it's, it's, it's always been interesting to me that, you know, to this day, 99.9% .9 of contracts are distilled down to a set of flat digital, you know, digital PDFs. And that is the, that is the, that is what the contractor is required to deliver. Um, and so it's, it's one of those things that you, you, know, you hand them essentially a stack of papers. You can hand them the model. You can give them all of these other pieces of information. But, you know, when, when push comes to shove or, or you know, at, at the end of the day, what is on the digital PDFs is really all that is owed by a contractor. And I think one of the things that I would like to see on the interface, and I do see it, you know, cropping up uh, in, in various places is, you know, like Joe said, contract deliverables, you know, need to include beyond the physical asset. It needs to include some sort of digital asset. And, you know, it needs to move beyond taking that digital piece of paper and drawing some other things on it and saying, here's your, you know, here's your, here's your as bills. Um, I think contractors are becoming more sophisticated. Uh, they have the potential, but I also think that the, you know, the onus is on ownership groups, the people, those, you know, these entities that are funding the projects to really ask those questions and, you know, require that of the contractors. 
to deliver that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to make that make that the requirement, right? Be like, uh, you know, at the at the end, this is what I want. So it's interesting. So like, you know, uh, I think it was episode eleven uh, of the Connected Construction podcast with um, Oystein Olvestad, and he it, it was death to drawings was the title of of the episode, mm-hmm. right? And 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 he was part of a project in Norway that built um, a, a a bridge, zero paper. The entire thing was done with the three uh, with a three D model. And that you know that's that that's the that's that's the dream, so to speak. So I, I'm I well, hear you it, there, Zach. I'm sorry. I had one, I'll say where, where, where it is. Because, I mean, I've seen it cropped up even you know, a little closer than Norway. Is uh, I know you know entities such as you know the Illinois Tollway. There are uh, has come and moved forward that they're launching a pilot program to do uh, what's called models of legal documents and the deliverable of their contract to is a model and their deliverable at the end of the day is a model and there are PDFs issues and they're, but they are considered for reference only, which is really a, you know, exciting notion. And I think that the industry is moving towards that. And, you know, part of that is around, you know, again, interoperability between software systems and a, a lot of things, making sure that, you know, it can be clearly understood, but um, re-looking at how, con- you know, how contracts are structured and those mechanisms um, I think is really going to be key in terms of making data available um, and persistent through that design over uh, designed operations uh, standpoint. It's continue that that thread of uh, you know digital technology between and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree, and this is this is great to hear. Um, I you know it, it really needs to start with the owners um, making those requirements, establishing those standards and expectations and in, in the contracting documents that are issued, um, and the bridging documents that, that are issued, specifying how data will progress. So if we start with a model first approach in our preliminary planning and, and, you know, uh, you know, engineering phases, that should be model first. That model can be turned over for, for construction and it can be further advanced through construction based on you know, clash detection, construction that, that's going on to, to adjust and, and update. Um, it can really be leveraged for automated machine guidance, which is something we're, we're really seeing come about in the industry now to help you know, simplify you know, construction, to help simplify and, and reduce schedule and, and cost and certainly risk um, by having these models not just serve as something to help further the construction, but to actually produce the construction. Um, but it all starts with those specifications being very clearly defined up front, and the output conducive and supportive of that 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 owner's systems and, and data inputs, so that they are not responsible or carrying the risk of having to you know transcribe or you know as Rick noted you know yeah there's some red line markups here to, to Zach's point well we we gave you the PDF requirements you know feel free to have a an intern you know load those into your system because that that time takes too long and we've seen that with agencies that even have dedicated um, CAD specialists to, to bring that information in. It takes time, information's lost, it's incorrectly entered, and then we have a confidence issue, but it's also not there to help influence other projects that are going on. You know, agencies just don't work one project at a time. There's a lot of things that, that overlap that would benefit from, from having that information. So it needs to be available as it evolves um, in an accurate and, and corresponding format specified by, by the owner. Yeah, Aaron, I think you're, you're absolutely right, and I, I think you know, owners are almost... Um, we're in our own ways sometimes in that regard where we're, we are, you know, this is how we've done it for so long. And, and people, um, 
unfortunately, oftentimes forget that, yeah, technology has advanced and, and that really needs to inform the requirements that we are putting into our documents for what should our ultimate deliverables be, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are de deliverables out there now that can inform much better the operations and maintenance side of, of that resulting asset or group of assets, right? And, and we need to, t we need to leverage those because it's going to make the O&M side, uh, job easier, which in turn is going to make planning and design easier, so on and so forth, right? This is absolutely a circle. Uh, they all inform one another and, and, you know, the advances in technology can really be leveraged to make everybody's job easier and make data more efficiently accessible. Yeah. Um, and just real quickly, I, you know, owners, I think, need to, to, to think very seriously about hiring staff who can articulate these things, right? Um, you know, if, if an owner doesn't have staff, you know, at hand who can actually represent the ideas we're trying to get across here, you know, they don't know what they're not getting out of their projects, right? So they're sort of left in a, in a situation where, you know, they're just not helping themselves, right? So I, I want to just put that out there. I, I think owners should spend some time thinking about how they're staffing up inside, right? Not just hiring, you know, subject matter experts as contractors or consultants, but what internal staff are, are they bringing to the table who can actually articulate the right needs for their organization as technology is evolving for these things? And if I could put on my IT hat here for, for a little bit, one of the things that just started kind of surfacing in my mind as we're talking about, you know, owners and, and management of, of this information and data and, and usage for, you know, these various purposes that really needs to be included in the contract language is, is the IT security around managing this data, right? It, it's not a, it's not a piece of paper anymore. Um, the, the contractor, the designer, the, the, the engineer, the agency themselves, a lot are moving, you know, to, to, to cloud-based software as a service platform as a service-based solutions for these records and content management systems. And so there needs to be IT level specifications in place that define what PII is, um, what um, uh, sensitive security information is for the project, who has access to those files and information throughout their life cycle, how they're stored, backed up, encrypted, auditability, traceability of, of, of access um, and the life cycle of those records. That's something else that, you know, it, it hasn't transitioned, right? Because it, it was never there before. So that language is kind of left open. And I think that's a big risk point that, that needs to be addressed when we're talking about revisiting contracting language and working with this information is, is ultimately how it's housed, where it's housed, where it's managed, and, and who has access to that information, both in the varying stages of, of its development um, to help secure and protect it. Because when we're talking about, you know, water treatment facilities when we're talking about, you know, aviation and, and rail and, you know, large capital infrastructure, it it's important, it's critical. And we, we need to protect that infrastructure and the access to, to those records as well. So when it comes to the data security side, uh, so Aaron, thank you for bringing this up. This is, this is the, I think this is important. We're talking about data availability, but how about data protection? Um, so the, the question in, in Aaron, again, same thing, like, from your experiences with, with your customers, but to Joe, Zach, and, and Rick, has uh, within your organizations, has the has the concept of, of FedRAMP or state ramp 
started mm-hmm. to bring up? I, I, or number one, do you know what state ramp and fed ramp is first? Uh, and if so, have you started to hear that as a data security requirement in the future? We have from states like Texas um, and in California, there, there are varying agencies that, that also are starting to, to lead that charge. So we're starting to see that come out where we as a, a contractor consultant need to respond to how we, we manage their data, um, where it resides. So it's a lot of transparency. And if we're using a cloud-based, you know, platform like uh, AWS or Microsoft Azure, you know, what type of tenant are we in? Who has access to it? How are we controlling the files? Um, If it's managed and maintained in-house, okay, great. But how are we managing protecting that information? How do we audit it? Um, And from the consultant side, it's, you know, we have varying responses to to that. We have certainly risk and liability insurances that, that are in place. Um, but it is something we're seeing agencies ask for now and that we're having to be more uh, deliberate in, in responding to beyond just, you know, here's our liability insurance and in responding to, uh, to, to a proposal. Um, it's also something we continue to educate on. So, you know, as, as Joe noted, you, you need to have individuals asking for it um, and able to articulate the, the what and the why and the how um, to help put that contracting language in place and understand how to QA and, you know, check it to, to make sure that it's actually getting done correctly. Uh, so being able to perform independent audits. Um, but it's also up to, to contractors and consultants to help to educate and inform both of the risk and the mitigating uh, factors that can be put in place to still deliver value in a digital world while protecting against bad actors, right? They're, they're there regardless, but we need to make sure that we're following, you know, FISMA, FedRAMP, StateRAMP, um, that we're working in, you know, isolated, controlled uh, environments while still opening that data to the folks that, that need access to it to make those informed decisions, right? We, we don't want to just lock it away in the basement again. You know, th- that's not an answer. But we, we do need to put the necessary protections in place to secure it and make sure that only those that should have access to it are the ones that, that are able to. So, so Joe and Aaron just just brought out something that I um, feel is really applicable to a, to a lot of us, um, and, it, and it's the concept of of staff that really um, know what's going on in this area and can can communicate mm-hmm. it effectively across the organization. And Joe said something that's uh, really near and dear to my heart. Right, you, you need you need to bring on people that can do this work and communicate it effectively. And I think one of the biggest challenges, at least from my perspective in this area, is it is very difficult to quantitatively um, <clears throat> provide documentation to to people uh, when you're asking for new staff to say, hey, you know, this this person is, is going to cost me X and he's going to save me Y, right? Because a lot of the information, uh, the, the data availability stuff we're talking about, uh, it doesn't innately save you money, Right. Um, there's no quantitative figure where I can say, hey, moving, you know, to a cloud-based enterprise system for X, Y, or Z is going to save me um, $2 million. We know it's going to save huge amounts of time and efficiency, but trying to, to quantify that is a huge challenge for the industry, um, for people that are trying to get staff to do this work. And, and it's, um, I wish I had a silver bullet and a solution to say, hey, here's how you do it. Um, but I think it's it's really um, you know, to, to start that effort, you have to understand what's involved. You have to be able to connect the dots on where the efficiencies can be gained and, quite frankly, what problems that you are currently having that it can solve. 
um, because I think that's, uh, at least in, in my experience, that's the best way to approach that problem. Um, it, it's, it's not purely with those, those quantitative factors. It's the qualitative factors of, you know, here, this organization is having all kinds of problems with, you know, change orders, for example, or whatever the case may be. And here's how we can help solve that. Uh, and I think that's, that's how we begin to address that issue. That's how we begin to get staff that can really help us implement and then thrive with systems of the type we're talking about. So um, I'm going to bring us kind of to the last little topic here. Uh, and I think in our previous uh, earlier in this conversation, we talked about the data availability from construction rolling into the operations and maintenance phase. So I want to kind of move us backwards a little bit as an example um, and, and actually open this up to the, uh, so we're talking about data avail availability to bridge between the different uh, different phases of an asset lifecycle. So good construction data to help with uh, operations and maintenance. But we have also started to see um, a, a much greater need for good data from the planning and design. So good, better constructible designs to accelerate the construction phase. And I would imagine there's also the same same idea, good, reliable data from the operations and maintenance to make the, the planning and design phase uh, uh, much easier and much more successful and much more impactful. So um, that narrative is coming around to a question is, the, is that ha have you found those type of things? And in particular, I'd love to dig into the um, better designs uh, to 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 accelerate the construction phase. Have you found any any results in that? In terms of maybe it's bringing the contractors in to that planning and design phase at the in, to be able to influence the design early to help accelerate construction. Yeah, I can kick off this one. So at O'Hare in particular, we are starting to adopt more of the construction manager at risk uh, construction contractor model. Um, which essentially allows us to bring a construction manager um, into a project during its design phase to start um, helping with the, not only complete the design detail, but also start breaking it into its construction, you know, phase chunks and start to break apart um, a complex project into its kind of components and start um, you know, bringing the actual construction contractors that are going to do the work uh, to the table um, in sort of a meaningful way. Um, there is value in doing that because, you know, architects and engineers, you know, think in models and think in, you know, proposed conditions on top of existing conditions. Um, but having a construction-minded uh, contractor on board during that design phase really helps, you know, ask the right questions and start planning the physical work that needs to take place, right? Not that architects and engineers don't think about that, but because a construction manager at risk contractor is going to be held to that, you know, specific level of work, they're, you know, by definition going to be thinking about constructability, right? How do I bring in the right construction equipment in this limited area with which has operations occurring around it, how do I plan that out? 
you know, what does a month of work look like in this particular area? You know, certainly that's a challenge at an airport like O'Hare, where, um, you know, uh, pretty much all of our projects are being constructed in a brown field, not a green field, right? We don't have the advantage of putting a brand new facility in an open field that doesn't have any infrastructure already there or operations taking place. Everything we do at the airport needs to consider operations taking place around it. So that makes constructability a major challenge. So having that construction manager step in relatively early in the process helps have those conversations and kind of guide that, right? So we, we don't just think about, you know, what does the 3D model look like if you plop it down, you know, in this particular geographic space? How do we now separate the components into, you know, what does a crane need to do as it comes in? What routes does it need to take? Where can it actually operate with its radius? You know, what other construction equipment will need to be brought in and in what ways? So it does really help inform kind of the nature of the design and perhaps more importantly, the schedule and cost of the project. Dump it, everybody else. I mean, one of the things I, I've always enjoyed about, you know, BIM is really kind of the clash detection meetings where all the disciplines come together. They, they bring all of their information in and they're able to, to see, you know, conflicts, work through those conflicts and address them. But it, it kind of speaks to, to what Joe was commenting on. And, it, you know, we need to move away from folks working in kind of isolation and, and hoping it all comes together in the end or kind of muddling our way through it in the field. Um, you know, it certainly represents a huge cost and, you know, either to, to fee or to, to schedule, but it also represents safety issues as well. Um, trying to, you know, deconstruct or work through issues in the moment um, versus addressing those in a, in a digital format. So really bringing the right people to the table at the right phases of the work is critically important to help vet validate it. Um, you know, we like to say erasers are cheaper than jackhammers. So if we can correct those major issues um, early in the process and, and consistently through the right level of engagement, um, the, the more successful the project will be, the, the more we can reduce the, the risk, the likelihood of you know, significant change orders to, to fee and schedule. Um, but equally, I just, you know, safety is critically important. And I know we all want safety on our jobs. So we want to make sure, you know, as Joe noted, if, if we need to bring in heavy equipment or materials, you know, can the ground support it? Um, do, do we have the right, you know, um, access for, for, for that equipment or, or material? Um, is it going to conflict with other operations? Because, oh, geez, if only we would have, you know, asked this person, they would have been able to, to highlight right away that this was going to be a conflict. So, taking the right time to really identify the, those players, including them at the right time, um, allowing for their review and input is, is extremely beneficial at those given stages of, you know, planning, preliminary design, construction, and then O&M so that all of the necessary players are able to contribute to, to that larger success and implementation. Yeah, I'll say that the, the challenge I always give to any, any of the, the contractors, the bin leads, uh, you know, the, that we work with is, you know, the intent of the contractor is one, you have to develop the fabrication shop models to, you know, facilitate the manufacturing process. Uh, but it's also the model of the things that aren't on the drawings, you know, and I, I think that speaks to what Joe's talked about is, you know, what are those clearance zones? What are the safety zones? What is the, you know, how do you articulate your means and methods or how do you use the model to help articulate means and methods? And, 
you know, perhaps ask questions that you can do, you know, easily ask looking at the PDFs, but it's modeling what's not there or what's not going to be there at the end. It's just what is that, you know, modeling those temporary conditions and, um, you know, using that model to kind of, you know, mold it to this, you know, again, these temporary conditions. Um, that's, that's, that's also very important. But then, you know, then how do you distill that back out and, and make that, uh, you know, necessarily not a part of that final asset deliverable? I think we've we've touched on a lot of a lot of things here with your last question, Matt. And I think to me, it it all boils down to one thing, right? <clears throat> um, with efficient access to lots of different types of information, um, it allows staff and stakeholders to really focus on on some of the things that they perhaps wouldn't have had time for or or didn't do as effectively as they could in the past. Right. So is that from a safety perspective or you know, whatever perspective you might be looking at constructability? Um, what I'm finding is that because we are starting to do a much better job of making information available to these folks, they are able to focus more on the, on, on those things. Right. We, we have fewer constructability issues because people have had time to sit down and talk about them. Right. And I think that's that's huge from our perspective. And it's another one of those, you know, qualitative sorts of uh, bonuses you get out of data accessibility that, um, you know, we didn't have as, as good in the past. Rick, that's amazing that you, you, you just did my job for me in trying to sum up, sum up, uh, kind of sum up the last three episodes into one concise point. So I, I think you might have a future in podcasting. Uh, so that was brilliant. So thank you very much. And, um, Thank you to, to all of you. This has been just a great three-part series exploring this idea. Um, geez, we could probably go on for an, another 30 minutes if, if, we, if, if, we, if we had the time. So, but, um, you know, J Joe McHugh from Chicago Department of a Aviation, um, Rick Niederstadt from Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewer District, Aaron Ford from HNTB, and Zachary Lewis from Connect Chicago Alliance. Thank you guys so, so much for taking the time, uh, the extended time to do a three-part series. It has been an absolute Absolute blast uh, to everybody listening, watching that's gotten to experience this. If this was your first episode, there's two other pieces to this. Go back uh, and check out the past two weeks. Uh, thank you all so much for, for checking this out. Uh, and as always, until next time, stay connected. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Connected Construction Show. For more information, visit us at ConnectedConstructionShow.com.